You're listening to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew, and this is James Part 1B. As I mentioned before, we split this up into two. Uh, We've just spent some time learning about the influence, the pervasive influence of Hellenism, the Greek culture that pervaded James uh, and his community in the 40s of the first century. Yes, Rome is in power, but their culture is steeped in Hellenism. And we're about to just shift gears and talk about the main ways the Jewish community tried to be faithful to God, faithful to Torah, faithful to their scriptures in the midst of that culture. And you're going to see that there are pieces of uh, how we respond and react to culture found in all of the ways that they try to live faithfully before God in their own culture. We we struggle with the same things. We have some of the same tendencies, but um, this is our second podcast, but really the first message in our series and overview of the book of James. So the, the Jews, James's um, ethnic and cultural um, family, the Jews in his time responded to that, to the world around them in four primary ways. As they were trying to be faithful uh, to Yahweh, faithful to their scripture, you know, which would be our Old Testament, they responded to um, Hellenism and the culture around them in four primary ways. The first way um, and we find in the Sadducees and also Herodians. And the Sadducees, uh, you hear about them in the New Testament. They were the priests of uh, Jesus's day, of James's day. They were the priestly class. Essentially, there were seven families that m- made up sort of the priestly order. And in a very real, real way, I'm not exaggerating here, in a real way, they ruled, uh, these seven families ruled like a corrupt mafia. <laughs> so they were uh, in charge of carrying on the priestly duties and the religious system, the Jewish religious system of James's and Jesus's day. But um, these priests were dominated Um, by indulgence in a life of excess, consumerism, the pursuit of wealth and pleasure and power. They were dominated by a desire to have prominence and influence. They fully um, invested in and and took on all of the um, culture of Hellenism around them. They were people that would say, no, we're we're followers of God. We're, We're walking out our faith faithfully, um, but we're totally integrated with culture. We're, we're totally integrated. So they would have maintained they could serve as priest and embrace all that Rome and Hellenism had to offer. They could serve as priests and pursue um, financial wealth and power, uh, serve as priests and pursue having great influence and authority. They could serve as priests and in gold, in, in engage in uh, the pursuit of pleasure and entertainment and all of these things. They, they said, we can live in both worlds. And so this um, priestly 
class were were the top of the food chain, the Sadducees, and um, you know the group that were not part of the cl- uh, priestly class um, that's that did have this cultural appropriation and and kind of having one foot in both worlds were called the Herodians. And in James's time, um, these were the people who said, no, we, we, like, we fully embrace culture. We fully embrace all of the benefits and all of the good things we have in our life because of the wider culture around us. They were the ones who would say, you know what, um, uh, scripture and how we live out our faith are subservient to the larger culture around us. So where culture demands that we change things up, where culture demands that we view things differently, we, we, we shift and we shape our convictions based on culture as the dominating formational force, not faithfulness to God. And so they would say, hey, we're, 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 we're followers. We're following Yahweh. Um, but we are fully okay with and engaged in culture. And you could say, you know, we can't map these things directly, of course, and I, I want to be cautious as we even try to locate these things in our modern context because we can't fully map them. Um, but these would be people that would um, use the term, like these would be progressive Christians and uh, people who are, um, I, I'm so cautious to use this word because of the connotations, but sort of more liberal um, uh, Christians, people that are more liberal theologically who see a lot of gray and, uh, you know, where um, they would say, hey, welcome to the real world. This is what's going on in the world. And so we need to adapt and shape our convictions um, and our values and our, you know, some of those things just conform those to the reality of how the world is working around us. And um, so again, there's no exact template here, but just to help you in terms of that, there are also um, these Sadducees, the priestly class. These are, in some ways, you could map this, you could overlay our modern day... Um, our modern-day spiritual leaders, pastors, evangelists, uh, the ones who are kind of trotting around the world in their private jets, who get driven in luxury vehicles to, um, you know, and have basically created cultures around them that serve them, that serve to uh, cultivate their influence, their authority, their power, um, their wealth, their, um, you know, connectedness to people of power in government and in, um, in media and all of these things. That's, you know, again, got to be careful with this, but that's, that's some of the overlay here. The Sadducees were people who had priestly authority. They were the priestly class. They were the modern day, in our West, evangelical culture. They were, um, they were the leaders and pastors over the church that were totally bought into materialism, excess, into the pursuit of wealth in the name of God, 
and uh, massive corruption. And um, in James's time, the Sadducees spent money on lavish homes. Um, they spent money on beauty, uh, ornate mosaics and art in their homes. They were uh, f- fully embraced that. They fully embraced the Greek Hellenistic view of aesthetic beauty. And they made that a priority. Their response to Rome was to join it and embrace it in areas of ethics and areas of influence and power. And scripture and faithfulness to God kind of took a backseat. The second group, the second way that James's contemporaries, the people he's writing um, to the community, the larger Jewish community around James, the second way they dealt with the world around them were found in the group called the Essenes. And they're the ones whose response to Rome was to flee and uh, go out into the wilderness as a demonstration of their devotion and their desire to be set apart. So they're like, no, no, no. We want nothing to do with the corruption that we see. We want nothing to do with the worldliness that is around us. We are, uh, we're leaving town. And they were a group who left, um, left society and life. And they did it as um, with a desire to have a pure heart, to be totally devoted to Scripture, totally devoted and obedient to God. The most famous of these communities was the Qumran community. Um, and that's the community where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered, I think, in the 50s, um, have been instrumental, like absolutely essential in validating and verifying the authenticity and the reliability and trustworthiness of the New Testament. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, um, uh, everything sort of kind of clicked with um, the authority and reliability of the New Testament that we're reading. It was verified. I think there, they would say there's only um, in all of the Dead Sea Scrolls, what, what the Essenes did was they faithfully copied Scripture. They faithfully copied um, the books of Scripture. And there was like, I think, a 2% discrepancy there. Um, and so this was this community, the Qumran community that lived in the wilderness. Um, we don't know for sure, but it's like, likely that John the Baptist... Um, was brought up by this community. It's likely, um, or possible at least, that John's parents brought him out to the Essenes um, so that they could raise him as a Nazarite. You know, it's interesting, John's father, Zechariah, he was part of the priestly class, but you wonder why in Scripture they specifically say of Zechariah that he was faithful to God, that he was a man of faithfulness and integrity to God. Why, why would that matter? Wouldn't you think that all the priests would be like that? Well, you, you might think that today, but literally in James's day and in the time of the New Testament, that was not the case. The priestly class were wildly corrupt. 
And so the fact that Zechariah was not a man who was given into the corruption of his fellow priests is significant. And so it's possible that Zechariah and uh, his wife Elizabeth um, entrusted the Essenes to raise John, the place where John baptized the, the, the entrance of the Jordan River into the Dead Sea is right within eyeshot of the Qumran community. That's where John did his baptizing. That's uh, where Jesus would have been baptized. And um, so the response of the Essenes was to withdraw and remove themselves totally from uh, the worldliness that they saw around them. The third response of the Jews in James's time was found in the Zealots. And those were people who were passionate about God's kingdom coming and his kingdom coming by any means necessary. If you wanted to use a term, you could say these were the freedom fighters of Jesus's and James's uh, day. These were men who, um, who saw the need for God's kingdom to come, but their mechanism for bringing that about was through redemptive violence and just war. They believed that they were justified in, um, in murdering corrupt priests. They believed they were justified in murdering Roman soldiers uh, because in their uh, way of seeing things, they were bringing about the kingdom of God through the overthrowing of political power. And they wanted to tear down the government and, un, uh, and overthrow the unholy places of power so that God's kingdom had room to come. And so for, for the zealots, um, the kingdom of God was, their focus was on worldly government and kingdom. That's why um, Jesus had several zealots that he called his disciples. Can you imagine how radical, how radical the teaching of Jesus would have been for the zealots that he had around him? Most likely Peter um, would have been one. Uh, James and John might have been. Um, I think Simon is called a zealot. Um, Anyway, uh, can you imagine for these, um, these young men, and these would have been teenagers, these young men who believed that their God-given duty was at any cost to overthrow a corrupt pagan government and, and authority structure over them. Can you imagine how radical and disorienting Jesus' teaching on enemy love would have been? Can you imagine um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? I, I, his teaching would have radically um, ca caused internal friction in them. Jesus' teaching about loving your enemies, about turning the other cheek, about going the extra mile. Um, Jesus' teaching about um, rejoicing when you're persecuted. And um, people say all kinds of horrible things about you. And this would have been so disorienting for Jesus' followers. It's also why as they um, were getting close to the, the 
the cross, as Jesus is nearing the events of the cross, why they're asking Jesus, are you going to bring your kingdom into force soon? It's why Peter's cutting the ear off of the high priest's servant with his sword in the garden um, as Jesus is going um, to his arrest because Peter still, his worldview still is the Messiah is going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to overthrow the corrupt priestly class and they can't, they can't understand um, what Jesus means when he says that, he, you know, he's got to suffer and die for them. That, that just, it didn't even make sense to them. And uh, so there's a whole group of people around James. He would have grown up knowing zealots and these people who were passionate about God's kingdom, who, who were passionate for God's kingdom to come on the earth, and their mechanism for bringing that about was redemptive violence. And there was a fourth main category, the Pharisees. We read the most about them in Scripture. These Pharisees, like the Zealots, were fully devoted to God and his kingdom. But their devotion wasn't through redemptive violence. It was through an absolute obedience to Scripture. Um, So Jesus, probably 80% of his ministry time on earth, the three years of his ministry, 80% of it was spent in and around the Pharisees. Um, We have the most recorded interaction um, of Jesus with them. And um, the Pharisees had a deep devotion to Scripture and to the Word. Like, like the Pharisees, I mean, rightfully so, but we, they're, they're given such a, a horrible reputation because Jesus is very hard on them. In Scripture, he chastises them and rebukes them so strongly. But, but we have to realize, too, these, they were so devoted to following Yahweh. They were so devoted to Scripture. It would put us to shame today. Their devotion to Scripture and obedience to Scripture um, would put our modern notions of devotion and obedience to God to shame and they were people who uh, wanted and prioritized the precision of obedience to the text and a standard of total purity to each letter of the law. And Jesus, you know, the, the bulk of his ministry life in and around Galilee was in the epicenter of Pharisaic life. Jesus ministered in the hotbed of Pharisaic life. And so he engaged with them the most and he had the most blistering critiques of the Pharisees. What's interesting to note though, is um, you know he's around them for three years and they try to save his life a few times actually. They're, they're interacting with him. Jesus is around the Sadducees for one week and he's, uh, and he's crucified. And so there's a difference here in these for sure. Um, But Jesus's critique of them is um, not that they're devoted to the text, not that they're devoted to scripture, but they're in their devotion to scripture. They've added a whole um, extraneous and additional verbal law. They've added a whole bunch of other a mechanisms to try and be faithful that add to scripture, not um, 
and, and actually take away from God's purposes and plans for the people. They take away from the heart of God around them. And so Jesus is saying, look like your devotion of script to, to Scripture and to purity has led you into a place of a relentless self-righteousness and pride. And Jesus says, your problem is that you refuse to repent and your problem is that your adherence to um, purity and perfection in following the scriptures has left you with no compassion for the broken. You sit in judgment and condemnation over them. You call them to a standard that you yourself don't live, but you call them to follow this precise interpretation of, uh, of Scripture. And we kind of see that today. We live in a culture in some ways um, where, um, you know, we're no longer focused on sort of the big, the big rocks of um, essential core doctrines and beliefs. We're, we live in this culture where we're much more narrowly defining and interpreting what Scripture says. And often um, we, we're turning um, secondary and whatever the third area were, tertiary things, we're, inter- we're making those primary and fundamental. We're n- it's not now, did Jesus die for you? Do you accept the work of Jesus on the cross? It's what specific a view of atonement do you hold to? And if you don't hold to the one I do specifically, then you're not following the real Jesus. And so like in a pharisaical way, we've taken scripture and we've We've added to it and we've defined things in it that are not defined and we've, we've made it a weight around people's necks. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus' criticism of them is not their intention to be holy and set apart. His criticism is this has produced pride and self-righteousness in you. You refuse to repent and you have no compassion or humility toward God and others. This has deadened your heart, your compassion. And um, so these are the primary ways that the Jewish community is dealing with the question of how to be faithful to God in the middle of a Hellenistic culture. And we live today in the middle of a Hellenistic culture. Um, But Jesus, in the middle of this, introduced a new way for his followers to relate to culture a new way for everyone who finds themselves in one or more of these camps to discern then how to live the way of Jesus in the midst of culture. This new way of Jesus, it did lead to marginalization, discrimination, economic and social persecution. This new way of Jesus led people into that place of lost respect and lost freedom and the ability to control even the basics of their life. This way of Jesus um, led people into places where their anxiety and insecurity and fears were, were provoked. So the heart of the book of James is found in how you carry your convictions, how you love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength and how you love your neighbor in the midst of a Hellenistic um, world 
and culture that we live in. How do we live life in God's world by God's rules? How do we live out our faith? And that's what James is speaking to, to his friends and his community that are dispersed abroad. And um, James continues on. <laughs> well, that is a long introduction, but it's really important for us to set this. And I'm going to ask you this question at the end, but I'm, I'll, I'll ask you it now here in the middle. Which one, which components, which tendencies of those groups do you see in your own life? It most likely is not just going to be one. You're going to see areas of your own life where you respond to people and pressure and culture and pain, where you respond to, um, you know, uh, the things that just pop up in life, the realities that you're not expecting, the, the things that are pressing in on you. How do you respond in in those four ways, where where do you gravitate toward? Where where do you have a temptation to slide into one of those four, or which you know which of the four are you carrying in your life? Where do you see yourself in those? Jesus is offering a different way, and James is here to help his friends walk in the way of Jesus not in those learned ways that they grew up with. So James continues, Dear brothers, this is verse 2, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. I want to just define a couple of terms for us as best I can. Um, to help us understand what James is talking about. So James says, when troubles or trials of any kind come your way, that word for troubles and trials, I think primarily what James is um, was aiming at there is um, trials and troubles that come in two primary forms. One are trials that come from external tests, and these would be tests that are within God's sort of sovereignty or his providence. Think of Jesus's temptation or the suffering of the cross. Those were trials that Jesus walked through. They were troubles, trials, and tests that God had actually ordained for him, that God had um, kind of initiated and put in his life for a purpose. And so the trials and troubles James is talking about um, can be external tests that God has for us in life. And they can also be internal tests um, to resist temptation, internal tests of how we are processing pain or hurt or conflict or the, 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 the pressure, peer pressure, cultural pressure. You know, how do, we, how do we deal with the big questions of our day? The troubles and trials James is talking about will be either external tests that God is behind and in initiating or the internal realities, the temptations to sin, the tests of how we respond to temptation and to sin. But the purpose for James is always the same. The purpose for trials and troubles in James is to produce mature Christian character. That's the purpose of the testing. 
And I would say that that's something that we need to hold uh, in view all the time. God's purpose in testing us is not to, um, to break us, to crush us. His purpose is in producing character that is formed in the image of Jesus. And James goes on to say these are going to be trials and tests of any kind. I think what he's going after here is these are unexpected encounters with something that puts a person to the test by taking you to the end of yourself and beyond your own means. So James is saying when you face troubles or trials of any kind, when unexpected things happen in life, that bring you beyond your ability to control or manipulate or maneuver, when you're taken beyond your own capacity, how are you going to process? How are you going to walk through it? How are you going to be faithful to God? Then James says, consider it an opportunity for great joy. I want to just focus on that word consider because... um, I looked up this word and it means to go before, to lead the way or to have authority over. Scott McKnight says it this way, to consider trials as an act of joy involves an act of faith. Instead of looking at the trial, the Messianic Jewish community is instead encouraged to look through the trial to its potential outcome. To consider then is to shift from Um, the postures of victimhood and self-pity or the posture of rejection and denial. Those are both extremes that we tend to fall into um, in our own life. We tend to, when unexpected things happen in our life, when we are encountering unexpected trials um, and troubles in our life, there's a temptation for us to fall to the extremes of, um, of seeing uh, everything from the perspective of victimhood and self-pity or to fall onto the other side of the extreme of rejection and denial, like meaning um, I, I don't even acknowledge that this is going on. I'm not going to say Um, the word cancer. I I refuse to acknowledge or even accept it. There's a denial of it and a rejection of it. And James is offering us a third alternative to that, a way uh, through the middle, not, not found on those extremes. And that word consider is, um, is a word that invites us to to actually sit in a place of authority over, to take initiative and intentionality. And instead of being fixated on the problem, to being fixated on the trouble or the trial, to actually sit up, take ownership and authority and say, I'm choosing to look through this and And God, I'm asking you the question, what are you doing in my life? What do you want to do through this? What are you trying to do in my life through this? That would be what it means to consider it joy. Um, uh, This is something I've learned in the last year. I'm learning. I'm, I'm like an infant at this, but I'm learning when stuff like this is going on in my life, I'm learning to stop and say, God, I'm, I, 
First of all, I am thanking you for thinking highly enough of me to allow me to endure some of these things that I'm going through. I don't want to run from them. I don't want to uh, just, you know, kind of reject and live in denial of them. I, but I don't want to fall into self-pity. So what I'm asking you, God, is what are you intending to do? What is it that you want to do in my character? Thank you for caring about me enough to want to refine and shape my character through these. God, what is it that you are wanting to do in me through this? That's what it means to consider a joy. And when we do that, we can rejoice and say, thank you for loving me enough and caring for me enough to want me to grow in these areas of my life for having a big enough vision and purpose and plan for my life that you would need to do some of these things to, uh, to prepare me to live out my calling for you. That's, that's part of what it means um, to consider it joy. That's part of what James is saying is you, you, can't, you can't get sucked into the ditches on either side of this where you just respond with self-pity or with, um, with sort of rejection and denial and just pretend like it's not happening. You need to recognize if there are trials and troubles that are taking place, God has a purpose for them because he has a purpose for your life. He has a vision for your life. And, um, and that's what James is getting at. Consider it joy. Thank you, Lord that you care enough about me to want to shape and mold my life in this way. So what is it that you are after? What is it that you want to do in my life? And um, James is not unique in viewing trials and temptations this way. Paul says in Romans 5, because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently, excuse me, and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Paul goes on to say, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Peter says that similar things to James and to Paul. First Peter 1, 6 and 7, So be truly glad there's a wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Later on in James 1.12, James says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Jesus said, in this world you will have 
many trials, but take heart for I have overcome the world. You know, we live, I'm, I'm, I live in Canada, in Niagara. I've grown up in the church here in our Canadian slash American modern Western context. And one of the things that we have um, done so poorly with, because we've never really had to face these realities, um, you know, maybe, maybe my Oma and Opa did. They did on a different level as they fled Europe, fled Germany during the war and took a boat to Paraguay. And, you know, they faced trials and troubles in a way that I never have. But we, our, our environment, our evangelical church environment in the West has really um, a poorly developed theology of suffering. And it is, it is actually um, had disastrous effects and impacts on our view of God, our demands of God to meet our pleasures and desires and our rejection of all troubles and suffering are so often we, um, we so quickly, so quickly when the hard stuff comes, we so quickly jump to uh, attributing those things to the devil, to Satan. Satan is just, you know, he's the one behind everything for many of us. Um, and we so quickly fall into that temptation that if it's hard, if it's unjust, if there's persecution coming, unjust treatment happening, um, that God, first of all, would be totally opposed to our experiencing that. And second of all, we often locate that to Satan. And um, I'm just going to say gently, that is not, that's not a balanced scriptural approach. And uh, even in COVID in the last few years, um, m- many parts of the church have um, have just flat out rejected and assumed that God in no way would be able to use or wanting to use or even involved in, um, you know, s- some of the the shift in posture toward the church even during COVID. I want to be careful with how I enter into that, but I, um, that's something that I've noticed. We haven't, we don't have a theology of suffering and James begins by addressing the reality of life for his friends, that they are suffering. They are enduring hardship, but he's saying, look, there's a purpose behind it and God wants to develop your character and you need to stop looking at the thing and through it you need to consider god what are you wanting to to work at and do in my life through this thing that i'm experiencing so james is focused on character formation into the image of jesus and the expression of the kingdom of god to those around us this for james is discipleship this is spiritual formation So in James, he'll go on to say at different times that suffering builds our character with endurance, James 1, 2 to 4. Uh, Suffering builds our character in areas of justice, meaning we'll be less inclined to respond with anger and vengeance at injustice. We'll be less inclined to, um, to 
respond uh, in outbursts of anger to those who have hurt us or, um, you know, um, James will say in a few parts of this book that suffering builds our character um, into a life full of love and compassion, that suffering produces peacemaking. Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 verses 1 to 9 attributes suffering to the development of generosity. There is a purpose for suffering, for trials, and for troubles in our life. And I want, if you don't remember, if you've made it this far, first of all, uh, congratulations. I'm not even sure I would want to listen to myself for this long. But anyway, if you've made it this far, I'm so thankful you're still hanging in there. Um, and I want you to remember this more than anything else. If you forget everything else from today, that's okay. But I want you to remember this. The trial, so this is James's heart. The trial is not just what you're enduring. But James's focus in this book is going to be on how you endure it. So the trial is not just what you're enduring. Stop focusing on the what. That's what James is saying. Consider it pure joy. Consider, sit in authority and intentionality over the stuff that's going on and say, God, how are you calling me to endure this? The concern for James was that the Messianic Jewish community um, around him, he, his concern was that they not turn to verbal abuse of others or volatile anger or um, you know, a, a brute force or overpowering, lording it over people in order to bring about the will of God in ordering to prematurely end the trouble or the trial they're in. He's saying, it's not what you're enduring, but how you endure it. That's the marker of the kingdom of God. That's the evidence of the reality of Jesus in our life. And uh, James says that this uh, will produce um, a reality that we become perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So um, for James, maturity is defined as being complete. Someone who is completely sound, a healthy body, a, a person who's not fractured and splintered by the troubles that they unexpectedly encounter. And so uh, just, again, for your life and my life, let's just be a little bit self-reflective. When unexpected things pop up in your day and in my day, when the unexpected reality of a global pandemic, regardless of what you think of how the world responded to it, how our government responded to that's not the question. The question is, did you become a splintered form of yourself? Were you shattered into a hundred different pieces? Were you, were you given to anger and verbal outbursts of anger? And were you given to, um, you know, uh, an insatiable need to take back control in your life and to kind of, you know, to stick it to the man, so to speak. James is saying being perfect and complete and lacking nothing is defined as maturity, and maturity is defined as being completely sound, a healthy body, somebody who hasn't been splintered apart and fractured into pieces through the pressure of testing, that that's part of what God wants to do 
in your life and in my life is to, as we follow Jesus and become more like him, we have the wholeness, the shalom, the completeness of Jesus so that we can encounter any unexpected trials and not come apart at the seams. That's what James is working toward. And so in order for that to happen, here's what James goes on to say. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Don't waver for a person with divided loyalties is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. So wisdom for James is not intellectual ability to spit out proverbs or axioms for life in specific situations. Wisdom for James is the kind of life that pursues justice, love, and peace, the kind of life that is able to sustain the ethic of Jesus, the way of Jesus when the pressure is on and we are tempted toward hot-headed reactions. Wisdom for James is the ability to sustain the ethic and the way of Jesus when the pressure is on. It's the ability to recognize when things are beginning to uh, come apart around us or unexpected things happen. It's the ability to recognize the way of Jesus through it. And so what James is saying is when you are facing these troubles and trials, what do you need to do? You need to... uh, engage your prayer life. Prayer for James will be essential in how to process and face troubles and trials. And so James is saying, look, when the unexpected realities of testing and temptation and pressure happen, what do you need to do? You need to go to prayer. And what do you need when you, uh, what do you need to do when you go to prayer? You need to ask God What is it you're doing in this? How do you want me to process this? How should I see this in the way that you are? Don't go to God and just start, you know, venting about, I mean, we can vent and there's, there's, there's Psalms that are venting. We, we need to be real. So I'm not saying don't be real with God, but what I'm saying is the greater question James is calling us to ask is God, what are you doing through this? not obsessing over what the trial is, but going to God, asking for wisdom is saying, God, how do you want me to walk through this? What are you doing in me? God, would you show me um, what your purposes and your plans are? God, would you teach me even to pray through this? I was talking with somebody after the service actually about this very kind of idea. And we were kind of talking back and forth about that balancing act of faith praying in faith, declaring in faith, and believing in faith, and accepting the reality of just what's happening. And that's a tension. I don't know the right answers to that, but that, as we talked about it, I said, you know, I don't think I ever approach someone who is, um, you know, in need of healing or is sick just out of the presumption that I even know how to pray. So for me, asking for wisdom from God in the midst of that kind of trial is, the, um, uh, is, is saying, teach me how to pray about this. Uh, 
how do I even approach you? What, how do I, what kind of questions do I ask? What kind of way do you want me to see this? That's what James is calling his friends to, and that's what we're being called to today. When you are facing a trial of any kind, look through it to the purposes of God. Get on your knees and start asking God, how are you calling me to walk through this? I don't want to get overwhelmed and fixated on what the trial is. I want to know how you're inviting me to live. What are you doing in me? God, what is your purpose in your heart for this in me? And um, and um, that's primarily where I want to leave it. James then goes on in verses 9 to 11 to then talk about um, these trials manifesting themselves in, in economic oppression and in uh, the disparity between the wealthy and the poor and the stigma that comes with that, the shame that comes with that, the the difference of uh, you know how our the culture around us would value and and view economic prosperity and wealth and james is saying look the kingdom is different the kingdom is up upside down you know god is not impressed by wealth he's not impressed by um you know, bank account. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with having a nice home. There's nothing wrong with those things. But those things don't define value and worth and identity. And God is saying that the believers who are poor have something to boast because God has honored them. Uh, Wealth will fade away. Riches will fade away. Um, our achievements, our trophies, our medals, our accolades, our the titles behind our name, all of that will fade away. And so um, the pursuit of our lives is to be shaped in the image of God. It's to follow the way of Jesus in a culture that is violently and aggressively opposed to his way. And so here's a few questions to ask just as we end this uh, today. Here's what I want you to ask. How are you when the unexpected pressures of life or just the cultural realities, the pressure of culture, the Hellenistic culture we live in, how are you a combination of those responses of the Jews, those four responses, the Sadducees, the Herodians, um, the Essenes, the zealots, the Pharisees, or the way of Jesus? Like, where do you gravitate? Where are you tempted to kind of slide into? How do you respond under pressure? Do you spontaneously respond out of the fruit of the kingdom of God that Paul talks about in Galatians? Do you respond spontaneously in love to your enemy, to your spouse (laughs) when you're fighting, to those you disagree with politically? Do you spontaneously respond in love to our prime minister or the president or, you know, whoever is leading over you in government? Um, And when the pressure is on, when the unexpected trials and troubles happens, where are you on that scale? 
do you naturally gravitate towards self-pity um, and um, that end of the scale that is focused on you being the victim or do you naturally gravitate to the other extreme, which is, you know, there's nothing wrong here. Um, you know, in Jesus' name, you know, I refuse to acknowledge or accept that I'm sick or that there is any trouble going on in my marriage or, you know, whatever it is, which extreme would you tend to fall into? Jesus is offering us a third way through and James is saying uh, to his friends, to those who are following Jesus, there's a different way to live in the way of Jesus in the midst of unexpected trials and temptations, unexpected trouble that's coming from a culture and a world around you that wants nothing to do with Jesus. So the question pastorally for James is how do we live? How do we live out our faith? How do we walk it out in the midst of a culture that's obsessed with power and pleasure and materialism selfish ambition, individualism, and me, 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 me. How do we do it? Um, that's what is going to be on the heart of James throughout this whole book. So uh, let me just pray, and we'll be done for this episode, this first part. Jesus, I honestly don't know how to do that best, but I'm... I'm just asking, Holy Spirit, that you would teach me. Teach me, teach those of us who are still listening in at this point. Would you teach us how to walk out the way of Jesus, how to not focus on what the trial is, what the trouble or temptation is, but on how you're calling us to walk it out on how you're calling us to live through it. Jesus, would you teach us to come to you in prayer, um, to ask for wisdom, to ask those questions of what are you wanting to do in my life through this? How do you see this? How are you inviting me to pray? How are you calling me to live faithfully for you in the midst of that? Would you begin to shape us in a new way, Jesus, in all of these things? Amen. Have an amazing week. We'll see you next week for part two.